Welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and this week I'm going to be talking to Ray Knowles. So Ray is a queer woman whose debut novel, The Stradivarius, released on May of this year, and it hit number one in Amazon's LGBTQ horror and thriller categories. She has several longer works forthcoming. Her sapphic horror novella, Merciless Waters, is going to come in November of this year from Brigham's Gate Press. And then her collaborative novel with April Yates, The Lies That Bind, is going to come in February of 2024, also from Brigham's Gate. She's also got a short story collection that's going to be coming in 2025 from Off Limits Press, and then another novel from Clash Books in February of 2026. Her short fiction has been featured in Dark Matter, Inc., Nightmare Magazine, Ghoulish Tales, Seize the Press, Taco Bell Quarterly, and Nose Touch Press, among others. She's editor-in-chief of Lady Mantis Books, which is an erotic horror imprint of Brigham's Gate, and she's an active member of the Horror Writers Association. This was a really interesting conversation. We mostly talked about the Stradivarius and Merciless Waters, but I'm really excited to have her back on down the road uh, to talk about some of her later work. But before we dive in with Ray, I do want to just press you guys a little bit to, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, go to whatever streaming service that you're using and rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Getting some reviews would really help in terms of like getting the visibility for the podcast out there. So just take a few seconds, uh, go ahead and click subscribe, uh, give us a little rating, write us a little review. That would be very greatly appreciated. I also just want to remind everyone that I have started a Horror from the High Desert newsletter. You can find that at substack.com at Horror from the High Desert. So go ahead and subscribe to that too, and let's go ahead and dive in and talk to Ray Knowles. So we met at StokerCon very briefly. And one thing I have to say, like, I think you were set up, your your table in the signing was set up next to my friend Rebecca. And right away, I saw the book cover for the Stradivarius just completely grabbed my attention. I, I guess just real quick, like, what was the thought behind that design for that book cover? Yeah. So, and and the cover artist, by the way, is Max Stark. He did an amazing job. My original idea for the cover was actually like a violin with sort of a a woman trapped in the neck of it. So that was sort of what I sent out to him as my, my thought about it. And um, he sort of, you know, uh, worked his artistic magic and and came up with what was there. And from my original design, it, it included like the blindfold. Mm-hmm. I, I had thought of that, but I, I loved his brilliant idea of sort of blending her body with the violin itself. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a my same concept, but a different take on it. And I think he did a really great job. Yeah, it was very evocative. And one thing that, you know, it grabbed my attention right away. And then you immediately said that it's basically your kind of take on the story of Gaslight. Yeah. Kind of a modern take on Gaslight. And that immediately intrigued me. So, and I did read the book. I do want to, I do want to talk about it. But before we kind of get there, I just want to kind of like get a little bit of sense of your origin story. You know, like uh, when, when was it that you kind of discovered that you were a writer and what was it that sort of brought you towards horror? 
So I enjoyed writing from a really young age, you know, maybe elementary school even. Mm-hmm. I think I started writing little stories and started writing horror stories in high school, you know, just for fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I majored in English in college with sort of a lofty idea that I could just be like a writer slash professor. I had no concept of the real world. <laughs> Turns out you need like a PhD to be a professor. It's actually right. a <laughs> deal and you can't no one will pay you for just being a writer which is frustrating Um, (laughs) so you know I ultimately pursued um social work and and became a a therapist for a bit and got away from the writing and and part of that was you know I'm in recovery so Mm. my addiction took me significantly off course Mm. in general um, yeah. including writing, but around 2020, and I always knew I wanted to get back to writing at some point, but in, I think in 2020, the movie Shirley came out and I've mm. talked about this times. It's like the silliest thing to get back into writing, but I saw the movie Shirley, uh, which is loosely based on Shirley Jackson. Right. And, it stars, um, um, is that the one with Elizabeth Moss? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It was like on Hulu, you know, right. just one of those random streaming movies that you pick and something just clicked in my head where I said, I want to be, you know, a, a female horror author that's sort of slowly descending into madness. That's my <laughs> life goal now. Um, so so I decided I'm going to write a novel and, you know, I, I don't know who the audacity of that is stunning to me, <laughs> um, but I, I did write uh, my first novel, which was terrible and it you know it'll never see the light of day but you know slowly I I got into the writing community and uh, through short stories sort of I think got a little better at writing I hope and yeah so fast forward here we are it's just that silly Hulu movie (laughs) (laughs) well that's but that's interesting because I did I saw that movie too and I'm a big Shirley Jackson fan I mean that actually kind of makes sense to me that particularly if you did feel like your creative path had been derailed for a certain amount of time that that movie would speak to you was there anything in particular about that movie that kind of really spoke to you specifically or was it more just her as a person I was fascinated by her as a person and I wasn't familiar with her writing at the time, but, you know, Mm -hmm. love her now. So that's sort of another piece of synchronicity. I think it was the combination. I'm again, sort of a romantic, not in the um, intimate sense, but in the like, uh, I'm doing hand gestures sense <laughs> of the idea of like, I don't know, an old decaying home that she sort of lived with cluttered, cluttered right. in books and just like kind of being a recluse. Like mm-hmm. that idea sounds really wonderful to me. If I could like materialize that somehow, <laughs> I definitely would. So I think it's a combination of, you know, always really enjoying writing and just, you know, my idea that one day I can retreat into a cabin somewhere surrounded by musty books and somehow survive <laughs> yeah well i mean that's i mean i feel like that's almost every writer's dream is some some version of that particularly those of yeah. us who are drawn to horror we all like the like the the cabin in the mountains kind of idea totally i, yeah. I would say like my dream is i'd love to get like a winnebago or something and have that be like my mobile like cabin that i drive around (laughs) oh that'd be great see i get motion sickness i wouldn't do well but uh (laughs) but yeah same concept you know just sort of everyone leave me alone general Mm -hmm. world let me sort of retreat into my imagination and you know that's the right yeah Yeah. (laughs) so you said you you 
started writing kind of horror stories in high school and then he got away from it obviously and then now you come back how have you like i've i've gone through my own kind of journey with that it's a little bit different but it's you know i was a fiction writer when i was younger then i went into film for a long time i spent you know a couple decades in the movie industry and kind of have recently come back to really focus on the fiction writing and one thing i noticed is just how like i'm 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 sort of fascinated in the things that i see in my writing that have stayed consistent and the things that have wildly changed like what are some things you've kind of noticed that have in what ways have you kind of grown as a writer in that time and then what things have kind of stayed the same yeah so i'd like to think craft wise i've grown since mm-hmm. my early high school <laughs> rambling sure um but now that you mention it i i even then wrote a lot about female rage i think mm-hmm. it's always been a really poignant interesting unexplored to the extent that it could be a thing. So when I'm thinking back, definitely those stories were full of of female rage. (laughs) So that's been a constant. And when you say rage, like that's because I'm thinking specifically, I want to get to it, of um, uh, your novella, uh, Merciless Waters. What is it about the rage? You know, rage, that's a very specific word. It's not anger. It's, you know, what is it? about that that kind of captivates you? Well, I think, and and just speaking for myself, but I would imagine probably others might relate. There's uh, an expectation um, that I feel is placed on me as a woman to be agreeable, um, Mm -hmm. easy to get along with, likable, all of these things. And you know, uh, uh, that's meant that many times in my life when things that made me angry, you know, never expressing that in the way that maybe I wanted to or right. or would have felt more true to me. And I, I think of female rage as a collective experience, if that mm. makes sense. Like, I almost yeah. imagine that there's this pool of all the rage that's been suppressed mm. um, yeah. by all the women and femme presenting people, you know, in our collective history. And one of my thoughts with Merciless Waters was sort of what if that all poured out and Mm. and poured out from women slash beings, you know, I, I won't necessarily give it away. But capable, very capable of being scary figures, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the other thing. Again, just speaking for myself as a cis woman in the world is that even if I were to express rage, right, mm-hmm. that's dangerous because mm-hmm. my yeah. physicality in most situations can't keep me safe in that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sort of have this fantasy about, you know, being a powerful creature that could finally express rage and and be safe, right? And and command respect. So I think, you know, it's it's a longing for that. Not that I want to run around screaming at people, um, <laughs> but I think it's a longing for being able to be more honest about feelings is I think what's underneath it. And rage is just a... Mm-hmm. conducive to horror right yeah <laughs> right i mean that's really interesting what you just said about the lack of safety and being able to express rage because obviously you know i'm a cis male i'm six foot four i'm you know i'm a big dude and i've almost had you know for me there's almost like an opposite thing of like being very i'm very aware of what rage from me looks like to people mm-hmm. and i try to be very cognizant of that and very 
I don't have that kind of wish fulfillment, <laughs> I guess, because yeah. like that's dangerous in a different way coming from someone like me, you know, mm-hmm. but I can, but I can kind of relate to what, you know, I can kind of relate to the idea of there are times where, you know, based on circumstance or based on how you're being treated or whatever, you just, you want to like, you just want to let go. And I really feel like I, I, I have not finished Merciless Waters yet. I'm probably about two thirds of the way through it. I'm really loving it. And I feel like there's just an energy that's about to uncork. And I'm kind of like at that point where I feel like something is going to, you know, it's just that pressure is building. Um, talk. I, I was going to hold that off a little bit later, but since we're talking about it, go ahead and just talk about that a little bit. When is it coming out? It's coming out in November, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's coming out in November and um, I'm very excited. So it, it's a novella. Uh, it's only about a hundred pages. And the premise is that a a Rusulka will do anything to win back her fickle lover, um, mm-hmm. even if it means destroying their shared immortality. Mm. And I, I became instantly obsessed with the Rusulka lore when I mm-hmm. discovered it. I actually discovered it in writing a, a short story that came out from Seize the Press. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're just the perfect embodiment in my mind of kind of what I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. Yeah, describe that a little for anyone who's maybe not familiar with that lore. Yeah, so it, it's a Slavic lore, um, and mm. several countries in Eastern Europe have Rusalka, um, and it translates to mermaid, but they're not mermaids in the sense that we think of them with fish tails. Mm-hmm. They are, and again, the lore is a little different place to place, but essentially they're drowned women or murdered women, mm-hmm. depending on are and they're water-bound spirits that uh, will lure men in with their beauty above the water they're very beautiful and then once they're underwater they're rotting corpses and they you know Mm. men sort of you know in in retribution that's another theme that I love is retribution and and revenge Um, so (laughs) I, I came across these creatures and I was like this is perfect absolutely want to write about them yeah well it's i i knew a little bit about that lore i wasn't that familiar with it and you know i'm always fascinated by mermaid lore in general because we have this pop culture idea of the mermaid and it's like so many fairy tales it's like you know so much of our mass collective consciousness about anything is you know so informed by like disney or by movies Mm -hmm. um but once you like get deeper and darker i mean the mermaid is like essentially like the siren you know mm-hmm. or like i have a story about and i think they're called the fin folk uh which okay. is like a, it's like a northern celtic kind of from the shetland islands version but it's these watery shapeshifter creatures that appear as whatever you desire mm. and they lure you into the ocean because they want to marry you they want to capture you and then have you be their your you know their husband or wife huh. you know it's all of these all of these mythologies are so much darker than like we're used to and i think the Rasalka is great because it's like you almost can't get away from the darkness with that because you've got this like you said the idea that once you're underwater there's this transformation into this rotting corpse which is such a great image (laughs) yeah yeah what what so was was the inspiration for that story really just kind of 
did that just kind of come from discovering that mythology or was there um like where do the characters kind of come from without trying to spoil too much about it no it's it's no problem i actually have written a number of short stories about those characters um usually under different names Mm -hmm. Uh, but i've written i think five or six short stories with the same couple and they have the same dynamic um so i knew i wanted to write a longer work about them and then the lore part actually came in afterwards when I was kind of trying to put the pieces together the ideas I had and the idea the original idea was uh that I wanted to do sapphic folk horror on a pirate ship Mm -hmm. so I was trying to think about how I could create like a folk horror feel confined Mm -hmm. to a pirate ship and and what lore I I could use for that so that was sort of the genesis and you'll you'll kind of notice that the Stradivarius and Merciless Waters involve a couple in which one of them is has narcissistic traits. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I like writing about a lot is that dynamic of a couple when one struggles to empathize and, and does a, a lot of things that are aloof and uh, insensitive to the other's mm-hmm. feelings. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting because, you know, in the Stradivarius, it's very clear who the narcissist is. And obviously we'll get to that, you know, because we're talking about gaslight and everything. Mm -hmm. Now that you say that though, about Merciless Waters, and again, I haven't finished it yet. So um, maybe, maybe the answer is coming, but I could kind of see like in different ways, each of, you know, we have Lily and then I'm trying to remember, do you name the main character, the the narrator? Yeah. Jack. Yeah. Right. In different ways, they both display lack of empathy in in, yeah. in their own way, I guess. Like, how do you find that balance between them? Because I find their relationship seems really complex. And there's a sense of both timelessness to it. And some of it is, you know, it's like the, they both don't really remember a time without each other. But then there's also this, this kind of ever-shifting dynamic between them Mm -hmm. yeah and I'm so thrilled to hear you describe it as timeless because I'm actually planning another book that's very much about that and Mm -hmm. I I think my my idea for them is that they're like hell's version of soulmates like (laughs) these souls that find each other in every life and every permutation of reality Mm -hmm. but it's not for each other's good is sort of like my thinking about them and you know it becomes clear I won't spoil the novel for you for (laughs) sure by the end I think who the narcissist is um but I I like the idea that neither one is healthy I Mm. I like the idea that stories without a clear hero Mm -hmm. um I, I like that ambivalence a lot more when they're both complicated and they're both deeply flawed and neither one is Mm -hmm. really doing the right thing but we're somehow rooting for them i Mm -hmm. i love that well yeah the that is one thing i will say you know in the stradivarius there's definitely one person you're rooting for in that relationship and one person you're not yeah in this relationship of merciless waters i do like there's a part of me that wants to see you you know sort of like wants to see them work it out or whatever you know but like you said you feel like this dynamic isn't healthy and it's almost making me think of i have an ex-girlfriend who talked about one of her relationship with one of her friends and she said you know she talked about how like well we're you know we're super codependent but we're like the good kind of codependent 
And I was like, I don't think that's a thing. Like, I don't think there is a good kind of codependence. <laughs> and like, yeah. one thing that's really interesting to me is you, you mentioned that you worked as a therapist for a while. You seem to really have a sense of that, of that kind of codependent dynamic with, you know, these are mythical characters, but they still have this very human sort of psychological relationship with each other. Um, what was your what was your background as a therapist and how do you think that kind of like relates to your writing? Yeah, so I've worked in mental health and substance use for about 10 years now. Some of that time as a therapist and some of that time in other roles that are pretty similar, I guess. I think the, the thread is that I, I'm really interested in stories. Mm-hmm. So obviously I enjoy writing stories, but I also am really interested in people's stories. Mm-hmm. And I've heard a lot of people's stories and... I have seen lots of ways that people cope, you know, and some people mm-hmm. might call those different diagnoses, right. um, but see how that plays out and, and how different versions interact with one another. And mm-hmm. I just find people and their stories endlessly fascinating. And I think having um, been exposed to to those sorts of you know, stories um, in the concentration that I have, mm-hmm. I've been able to sort of pick up on a lot of traits and how different people act and mm-hmm. and how and the consequences of, of being that way. Yeah. Did you deal with, and I mean, obviously, you know, don't want you to know, like violate doctor patient privilege or anything, but like, did you deal with couples at all? Or was it, you know, more individual type therapy or? Yeah, more individual, Um, mm-hmm. you know, very limited stuff with couples, but the couple, well, the Stradivarius was largely inspired by a, a relationship that I was in mm-hmm. sort of combined with a retelling of Gaslight. So I have personal experience of being in a relationship with someone right. who's like that a professional yeah well let's go ahead and talk about the Stradivarius and and so normally like when I've been doing these interviews I've been asking people to kind of recommend a movie that we can also discuss and I kind of hold that off towards the end but I think why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about Gaslight now because since the Stradivarius is so directly inspired by it I just rewatched the movie and I'm the version I watched I'm assuming this is the version uh you drew from was the Ingrid Bergman one yeah Charles Boyer from 1944 I believe Mm -hmm. which it's interesting I've I've never seen the original British version I have seen the stage version which is I guess much closer to the original British version is much closer to the stage play and then I've seen a couple times I've seen this American version I actually think the American version movie version is the best of them yeah and I was really it's been a while since i've watched it and i was really kind of taken aback by like how stressful that movie is you know and it's and i felt like the stradivarius works in a similar way where we you know we see the manipulation happening we're very aware of what's happening there's not we're never questioning whether it's happening but that creates its own type of anxiety because we can't stop it you know we can't we can't help this person but it's we see it happening too what was what's your background with that movie what was it about that movie that made you kind of want to retell it in your own way yeah well 
So I, I mentioned that I was in a relationship where I experienced some gaslighting and this was back in like 2008, 2009. Mm. And the term gaslighting was not part of the common vernacular. Yeah. So I had like this stuff going on, um, but no, no easy way to explain it to anyone. And I'm doing like all these Google searches trying to figure out what is going on. Like, am I, am I losing it? What is happening here? And uh, I came across the term and came across, you know, it, where it originated from, which is the film slash the original play. Mm-hmm. And it's such a commonly thrown around term these days that I I wanted to hearken back to the roots because I, I do fear sometimes that when we overuse a word as specific as gaslighting, mm-hmm. that we water it down. And I, I've seen it used incorrectly on the mm-hmm. internet a lot, sort of as a stand-in for someone who's lying right. or otherwise deceptive, which it's not that. It's much more complicated. Yeah, it's much more specific dynamic. And it's all about that power dynamic of, you know, it's not just about being lied to. It's about someone in a position of power over another person essentially making that other person question reality yeah which is Mm. you know that's beyond lying (laughs) and i'm i I agree with you i i feel like i see i've been seeing that term misused a lot it is funny because you know i was aware i saw the movie i think back when i was in film school so it would have been the early 2000s and then it seems like it's in the past four or five years it just suddenly entered the zeitgeist as this term and then like everything it's being misused and kind of misappropriated yeah yeah and so i i wanted to take it back to its roots right i mm-hmm. wanted to sort of remind people like no gaslighting is a very specific thing and like here's mm-hmm. where it came and and let me show you how this plays out and how it's not as simple. I can't show you gaslighting in one scene, right? It's a a process and and it's a process with a clear intent to control another person by breaking down their ability to trust their own perceptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when I saw the film, there's of course a lot that I love about it, especially that final scene. Um, But there's a lot about it that, didn't resonate with me right well, like it's, it's pretty dated <laughs> it's dated i yeah. certainly wouldn't call it a feminist film right no. like the the man <laughs> has to sweep in and save the day in the end she's right. essentially a damsel in distress the entire movie even though she's acts it brilliantly and is wonderful mm. so i i wanted to obviously bring that up to date and, and sure. give her some agency yeah. <laughs> it's funny you know my uh so I have this other podcast, The Weirdest Thing, and my co-host, Amelia, she runs a theater company here in Albuquerque, and they put on a performance of Gaslight. I want to say this is like six, seven years ago, and I'm and she directed it. Now, she really struggled, and I think the cast really struggled to like find a, a, a modern way into it because, of the, because those character dynamics in the gender, particularly the gender dynamics, are so dated. You know, and like you said, she really, it's not until the very end of the movie that she really has any agency whatsoever. And it Mm -hmm. is after kind of the Joseph Cotton character, like you said, sort of comes in and saves the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, she has that one speech, which is so mm -hmm. so incredible. It's worth watching the whole movie just to see her deliver it. But even then she sort of steps back and the, and the man rushes in Mm -hmm. to take care business you know right. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and it's just very melodramatic right like mm-hmm. it's and and that's of the time but just the melodrama sure. level is through the roof so yeah. i had to take that down a little bit 
But it is funny, you know, for as melodramatic as it is. And I do think with the Stradivarius, you're, you were able to take a lot, you know, the spine of that and really put it in a context that felt more realistic. But I felt like even with the melodrama of the film, I was surprised by how caught up I was in it. And I think a lot of it is the performances are just, um, I mean, Ingrid Bergman is always great. And then, yeah. but actually Charles Boyer is so, because you see his charm. And I think this is, we might as well, like we can kind of transition a little bit over into talking about the Stradivarius. Like you have that in Carter. There are moments where even like fairly late in the narrative, I found myself wanting to like him. Like, you know, yeah. he's got just enough of that charm that, like, you see why she fell for him. Mm-hmm. And how, how was that for you to kind of write a character like that? I mean, obviously, you have you have the basis of the original story, but you are modernizing it. So how, how, are you, how did you approach that? Yeah, well, I think I, I needed to keep him charming so that May's character was at least somewhat understandable right mm-hmm. and and I think at least I, I see people tweeting at me on Twitter when they're reading it that they want to reach through the book and like shake her to like wake up and yeah. get out of here which which is fine but I didn't want him to be so obviously evil and irredeemable that people were just like this is just not believable why wouldn't right. you know and and part of that is, you know, this happens to people in real life. Mm-hmm. And even in the face of really terrible things that they know this is really terrible, they're staying. And I wanted mm-hmm. to lend some credibility to that, right? Or, you know, that some empathy to that, that like mm-hmm. there was this other side and he was very charming. And, and that's why, you know, on top of questioning reality, this person is staying in this terrible situation. And it's not just that he's charming, it's that he really seems to, like, I think one thing you capture, I've not been in a gaslighting type relationship in terms of like a romantic relationship. I have had gaslighting type relationships with peers, with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a thing, you know, we think of gaslighting in the, the domestic abuse context, which is often, very often where we do find it. But um, you, you can find it with parent and child relationships, mentor, student relationships. I mean, I think one movie that's a great example of uh, gaslighting in a mentor-student relationship is the movie Whiplash. Which, you know, even though there's there's like a, a machismo to it and like a, a, a almost like a, a sense of violence to it that it makes it feel a little bit different. But when you like really kind of pick it apart, it, it's that you find those manipulative dynamics there. And one thing like when I think of a very specific friendship that I had when I was very young, and, and, and when I say young, I was a child with a peer. And the thing that I think about in that, relationship was it wasn't just a sense of you know this person's fun to be with or whatever it's that this person when this person is showing care for you you know you start to crave that because they're always like willing the you know it's that yanking it away strategically yeah mm-hmm. and i felt like with carter you really capture that where it's you know we have the character of may she's been you know obviously she's suffered this trauma of her father being murdered when she was a kid. She grew up, you know, raised by this aunt who's really was not equipped to be <laughs> a parent. <Yeah. laughs> um, and, 
And, you know, this this guy comes in and he seems to really, like, see her. And it, so it goes beyond just that sense of charm to this sense of, you understand why she wants his approval because she had it early on. And then all it's like, yeah. she lost it. So what did she do wrong? And that's, of course, the manipulation. Um, I thought that yeah. was really effective the way you... Like, I thought that's one thing that the movie kind of misses. You don't get that sense of there. He's so infantilizing to her early on that, that like, you understand his charm in, in that kind of dated melodramatic context. But I never really felt the weight of their relationship. I really did with May and Carter. And so I felt myself as a reader with May wanting to get back to that with him, even though I knew it was a manipulation, you know? Yeah, thank you. I think. Um, sorry, a little bit of a <laughs> not really a question in there, I guess, but no, but it it has me thinking. I I can't remember where I heard this, but I've heard that the most addictive thing to the brain is an inconsistent reward, mm. um, and I think that plays into it a little bit. Where you did A and B, and you got C, and the next time you did A and B, you didn't get C, right? But then you did it again, and you did. So you want to keep trying, and it's that sort of frustrating, right? That that's a really interesting way to put Back it. Back and effect. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to put it is is the inconsistency of it. That's what's so destabilizing about it. That and I think most people, at least speaking for myself, you tend to make generous assumptions about others and to leap to a belief that someone is intentionally maliciously mm-hmm. deceiving you to nefarious ends mm-hmm. would be so paranoid to like say out loud and and just not something you would jump to right you want right. to make a generous assumption and and when someone tells you something so confidently to your face you want to believe like oh maybe i was wrong maybe that so it just the whole act of gaslighting someone I think is so foreign to the average person mm-hmm. that it's very hard to defend against it. Well, I think, you know, one thing I'm fascinated by psychopaths and sociopaths. I think all of us who are horror writers are <laughs> yeah. to a degree. And, you know, we've all seen both in fiction and unfortunately in real life, we've all seen abusive dynamics. Again, whether it be in a romantic relationship or a parent-child relationship or some, some other type of relationship. And, you know, there's, there's a type of abuse where you can tell it's a lot of it's about impulse control. You know, someone has some breakdown with impulse control and they're lashing out a lot. And obviously this is not to excuse it or or minimize it in any way, but it seems sort of more random and less planned. Mm -hmm. The thing about gaslighting and, and you know, I've seen it with a friend's relationship in recent years, very systematic gaslighting that happened is that it is so intentional mm-hmm. and so calculated that it moves it to this this other realm almost beyond abuse like it's because it is uh there's an agenda behind it yeah yeah absolutely and you know in in my experience with the the person i was in this you know relationship with i don't know that he sat down one day and crafted a plan. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I don't think it was that intentional. I just think that this person was so damaged in a very specific way that it mm. came very naturally to him 
to behave in this way. And he sort of intuitively understood when he needed to ramp up the charm and attention and when he could pull it back. Um, Mm -hmm. And it seemed to flow very naturally to him. So, and, and that was just in my experience, but I, you know, so I don't think it's something that these folks are meticulously planning, but I think in my experience, there was a lack of empathy mixed with a high level of intelligence mm-hmm. and a high level of social savvy mm-hmm. um, that allowed them to behave in very selfish and harmful ways. Right. Yeah. And that, that yeah, that's interesting. That That is a good point because you're right. It's not always, when I say there's an agenda behind it, the agenda may just be control. Like it may just be to control this other person because of your own insecurities or like you said your own damage or whatever but it is it is that it's it's the over a long period of time literally making someone question reality yeah making them think that what they're seeing with their own eyes is not what they're saying that i think is what's so scary about it and what was really effective in the stradivarius is like i said i knew it was happening and i still found myself getting kind of caught up in it did you find yourself as you were writing it did you ever get kind of caught up in it yourself or reliving it in any way or was it were you always kind of able to keep a little bit of a thirty thousand foot view there were moments that I would get caught up in it. And I I think I wanted to, I wanted the characters to read authentically mm-hmm. and to help make them feel authentic. I did a lot of thinking back, um, both to what it was like to be in my place and how it felt and the rationalizations and the different things I did. For example, May writing things down in the journal. Mm. Um, something I did to try to keep track of whether I had made something up or not um, when this person told me that that didn't happen and I was pretty sure it did. Um, So I started writing things down. So, you know, I I kind of intentionally got swept up in it to try to Mm -hmm. keep it feeling authentic and, you know, on the end of the other person really thinking back to like, how did this happen, right? How Mm -hmm. did it start and in, in what measure, right, was it bad versus good? because it was definitely spliced in and and sort of a, a mess of both but yeah I, and I did that on purpose to try to make it feel real mm-hmm. I think that really comes through because there is an honesty with how it feels that um and like I said having you know been through in a very different way but having been through kind of a relationship like that in my life there was a lot that I related to and responded to there and that felt very honest and felt very lived so it it is pretty like you're not hiding the fact that obviously your inspiration was gaslight was the is the play in the movie what was that balance like for you to to like adhere to and kind of honor the original source material while at the same time like you said really wanting to push it into a more modern kind of frame of mind and also just bringing your own voice into it Yeah, well, so the first, very first thing I did was watch the film with a pen and paper Mm -hmm. and create a scene by scene outline of how the film unfolds and Mm -hmm. what characters are central. And then I sort of took that and um, I combined some characters. I obviously renamed everyone, but I wanted to Mm -hmm. nod to the film. So you'll see the street in the Stradivarius is called Alpha. Have and the right. aunt's last name is Alquist and Gaslight. So, yeah, you know, Elizabeth I want Tompkins to... too, I think, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to nod to it in those ways, but obviously not rip straight from it. And then I had to look at the character arc or lack of character arc, (laughs) maybe in Paul's case in the film, and trying to bring it up to date, right? And and change sort of the arc so that she kind of had one and wasn't just rescued Mm -hmm. at the end by some man who showed up five minutes ago. Um, You know, so it, it was a process, but I started there with that pen and paper outline of the film and then looked at it and said, what doesn't make sense in a modern context anymore? Mm-hmm. What are just my personal preference changes that I would like to see? And I obviously added Ollie and Ollie's sort of B plot and, and wove that yeah. in. And I want to talk about Ollie, um, but real quick, um, and this is maybe a good segue into talking about Ollie. You you have a scene uh, probably about halfway through, or a chapter probably about halfway through the book, where Ollie goes to visit May in the mental hospital where she has been manipulated to the point where her husband has managed to get her put away in this hospital. And I thought the dynamic in that particular chapter was really interesting because you have May, you know, has been, you know, she has been reduced to this very vulnerable state, but we're starting to see this anger come through. And and she kind of lashes out at Ollie, but we're also starting to see the anger being directed towards Carter. And we're starting to see her awareness of like, this isn't adding up. And it felt like that was really the moment for me where May departs from, I think the character in the movie is Paula. The Ingrid Bergman character is Paula. (laughs) Where Paula just continues to, to go down this path of really, like you said, being the damsel in distress. But this is where we see May start to kind of discover the strength. Was that was that a specific choice? Like, am I picking up on something? It felt like that moment was a real hinge moment for me. Yeah, definitely. In my mind, I think that's the maybe the dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. If we do save the cat, be cheap. Right. But totally. I have been in a lot of mental hospitals in a professional capacity. Sure. And I was once committed as a result of my substance use. So mm. I, I thought it was an interesting place for someone to gain agency when they have seemingly mm-hmm. lost all agency by being involuntarily, you know, committed basically and I'm also I'm very passionate about uh, mental health Mm -hmm. and um, I don't love how mental health is always portrayed and how institutions are always portrayed and the people in them Mm -hmm. um, often villainized and made very one note so selfishly it was also an opportunity for me to do something different in that setting than Mm -hmm. what we generally see well, and I think one thing that I, and I'm wondering if I'm reading more into this than was there, but you have a doctor character, mm-hmm. it's Dr. Levine, I think is his name, Yeah, who is, prescri- you know, he has just made up his mind <laughs> about May early on. And having had my own issues with depression and stuff, one thing I found is that if you have that mental health professional who's very interested and like really wants to help that's one thing but sometimes when you're dealing with like maybe the family doctor who doesn't quite know how to deal with which is the way I kind of interpreted Dr. Levine is like he's more like the small town doctor who's like just kind of going for the easy like I don't know we'll just keep messing with your meds kind of thing yeah like was that specifically that felt like a specific critique of a very particular type of health professional who's maybe not thinking through the mental health component enough 
Yeah, absolutely. I've volunteered with an advocacy organization for individuals mm -hmm. with mental health challenges for many years. And I've just seen time and time again, how whether inexperienced, right? So like in Dr. Levine's case, he's just out of his depth. He's this yeah. like small town family doctor. He's not equipped to deal with this. Um, yeah, he doesn't still... seem like a bad person, but... Exactly. But the, there are real consequences for real people right. with that. And then I think also just burned out mental health professionals that are kind of mm. it in. I mean, he's kind of phoning it in. Um, mm. And I, I didn't want to villainize those people, but I did want to accurately show that like the hospital is not necessarily going to like save the day all the time when it comes to mental <laughs> health. And it may do more damage than good uh, from, mm -hmm. from lots of people that I've worked with. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's interesting. And I'm thinking about, because I do want to talk about Ollie here in a second, but a couple things I want to mention. So one thing about the Stradivarius compared to Merciless Waters, I found, is that the Stradivarius is very straightforward in terms of the narrative in a lot of ways. And one thing I really was enjoying about Merciless Waters, and I'm excited to finish it, is that there's a there's a lyrical quality to it that seems very specific to that story. But you have moments of it in the Stradivarius too, where particularly as her mental health starts to break down, you go into these almost surreal kind of passages. And I think about, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a character who is killed about halfway through and she sees the body and it's unclear to her whether she actually saw what she saw or whether it was a delusion and the way you wrote that i just thought again i don't really have a question here i guess but i just wanted to say like i thought your language there was just really it's just gorgeously written like thank you so much you yeah. know it's funny it takes so long from actually writing a book for it to come out that i think my writing style has changed a lot since i wrote the stradivarius and I think that I, I write a lot more today, like I did in Merciless Waters, which is um, a little more of a almost strange cadence to the writing. I kind of get a kick out of that. It'll kind of throw you off at first, but I think you settle into it. It's a little bit almost dark fantasy feel. And there, there are things in Merciless Waters that almost remind me of Clive Barker in some ways. Thank you. <laughs> and like, um... But what I like about the Stradivarius is actually, I feel like if you had written the entire book, the Stradivarius, in the same kind of cadence that you write Merciless Waters, I actually think it would be distracting. Yeah. I think you need to have both because it gives you a place to go and the language starts to mirror what's going on with May in such a really, like I said, just really great way that I thought um, it was very captivating and very immersive. Thank you. Like I found that that particular chapter again. I'm trying to not spoil it, <laughs> so, so I don't want to say too much specifically about what happens. But like I said, where she essentially discovers a body, that was terrifying. Like I thought it was really, I found it very frightening, and it's because I wasn't sure exactly what I was seeing. Yeah. How was like as you're finding your writing voice kind of changing? Like you said, how how natural a process is that, and and versus like how much of that is kind of a choice to try and push yourself in some different directions yeah i think for me it's felt very natural and i would really encourage everyone to write lots of short stories because mm -hmm. it's been a low commitment way to experiment with different mm -hmm. voice and setting and just writing style and form even and that more sort of lyrical prosy type writing 
I just enjoy it more. And because mm. of that, I find myself writing more pieces set back in time. So the okay. novel I just finished is in 1903, because mm. like you said, that sort of voice doesn't necessarily make sense in a modern context right. and would probably be distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sort of intentionally writing back in the past so that I can write the way that yeah, I want. Kind of gives you that freedom. Yeah. Well, I, I, let's talk about Ollie real quick. So Ollie, I found was a really interesting character. In if we, if we put Ollie in the gaslight context of the original movie, Ollie's a little bit of a combination, I think, of the old lady at the beginning who's reading the mystery novel uh, or the and is like, I enjoy a good murder, you know? And then obviously the Joseph Cotton character who's the detective. But you go in a very different direction with with Ollie. So just talk about talk about who Ollie is and and kind of uh some of the creative choices you decided to make there. Yeah. So Ollie is a gender queer handy person. Mm -hmm. Um, in a very small town of Landrum, South Carolina. So you can Mm -hmm. imagine Ollie has challenges. It's sort of implied that Ollie is estranged from their family Mm -hmm. um, and is sort of mentored by the police chief of this very small town and has aspirations of one day being on the police force and is very into true crime, which is really just me projecting onto Ollie because I'm (laughs) into true crime and wanted to... To write it in. Um, But yeah, you know, I wanted Ollie to have their own arc and and hopefully that came through. Whereas I think, again, in the original, for me, the detective sort of comes out of nowhere to save Mm -hmm. the day. And like, I don't personally find that super satisfying as far as an arc. It's almost deus ex machina. (laughs) It's actually much worse in the original play. Really? Because he kind of comes in in like the first act and explains to her what's going on. It's like, I think your husband is, you know, this person who I think was the original murderer. And he just kind of pops up to like exposition dump uh-huh. here and there. And that's where I think it's actually more effective in, in the uh, American movie. But you're right. It's still pretty, like you said, not satisfying. He's not, Joseph Cotton's a great actor, but he's not a satisfying character. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. it's not great. And then, you know, as a queer woman, I also wanted to bring Mm -hmm. some queerness into this book because the central relationship reads as heterosexual, even though we know May has described herself as being pansexual. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I love Ollie and I love when people love Ollie. I've gotten like a ton of people telling me that Ollie is their favorite character, which I I love to hear because I think what's not to love about Ollie. They're bright and they save animals and, you know, they (laughs) want to catch the bad guy and and who doesn't love that? Ollie, to me, like, obviously I have no idea what your plans are in the future, but I feel like if you wanted to write a mystery book series around like the unlikely detective character, like Ollie would be perfect. And and we even see at the end, you know, again, not to spoil too much, but Ollie, you know, Ollie wants to be essentially a detective. Um, And we see them getting closer to what they want. It's a, it's actually a great setup for if you wanted to continue that character, I think. Thank you. What was, like, it's interesting because Ollie serves the role of kind of the Joseph Cotton detective, but they're, like, they don't save the day. You know, you don't have this character kind of come in to save the day. And in fact, May kind of saves Ollie. Like, how, how did you approach that? 
it was very important to me that no one save May. Mm. And I think that that came out of my frustration with the original where we watch Paula like suffer and suffer and suffer. And then someone just kind of has to yank her out of the situation, which I just did not like that from a feminist lens. So it was just Mm -hmm. really important to me that no one sweep in and save the day. And that Ollie sort of realized they were on their own journey where, you know, they, I think that by the end of the book, they kind of realized that while they do have some noble intentions, they were also going about their noble intentions in ways that affected other people poorly sometimes. Mm-hmm. And to maybe take a look at that a little bit. And right. um, yeah, so I, again, I, I enjoy complicated characters a bit more. And I think, I hope anyway, it adds like a bit more complexity than if Ollie was just a straight up detective who straight up solves the mystery and saves mm-hmm. the day and, well, there, there are definitely moments where Ollie gets in over their head because like they, I'm thinking of one in particular confrontation with Carter that again is actually, there, there are two or three chapters in the book that just really jumped out at me as being very frightening. Like I said, one was the one with the discovery of the body, but this confrontation between Ollie and Carter where really Ollie is in way over their head with this person who is clearly a violent sociopath. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, it felt like that was the moment for Ollie where it all kind of starts to become real. It's not just like another true crime podcast story or whatever. It's like, no, I'm in the middle of this, you know, and this, this is actually dangerous. Yeah. I really wanted to be honest about that too, because again, me being like a cis woman in the world, it's not as simple as just just stand up to this man and all your problems will be solved. Mm-hmm. There's danger in that sure. if you are not an equally large cis man, right. right? That can physically back that up. And that's not how I envision Ollie. Mm-hmm. Like I, I envision Ollie as somewhat slight and and certainly not physically capable of grappling with Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to portray that, that like sometimes the antagonist that we're going up against, you know, is not someone that we can take on with physicality right and and the reality of that and i thought i thought that was very that was very smartly done because one of the things i really related to with ollie is, you know i'm also a true crime fan and this is something that amelia and i talk about on our other podcast sometimes is it's easy to get wrapped up in these stories and forget that there are real people involved and like you know for you know, obviously ollie cares about may and is trying to help may But like you said, they're also, you know, they're trying to show off to their, like, police friends to, like, you know, maybe show, like, hey, I can, like, contribute, you know? know, And also just being kind of caught up in this, like, ooh, I get to be part of my own, like, murder mystery. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment where Ollie really has to confront, am I actually doing damage by my participation in this story? Mm -hmm. That I thought was very, like, very real and very human and made me, I already liked Ollie as a character, but it really made me empathize with Ollie even more in that moment. Yeah, that it actually makes me think about that same scene that you brought up with May and Ollie in the institution where May is sort of throwing it in Ollie's face. Like, do you want to kiss me? Do you want to kiss me, mm-hmm. Ollie? After there's been some like flirtation, but like, it's sort of like a baiting of like, get real, like come into reality. Yeah. You're you're playing this detective 
perspective game and here I am locked away, you know, right. like, you know, when we had just seen Ollie, like putting on a, a, a duster and, and a hat right. to go be on a stakeout, you know, like sort of in a fantasy exactly. a little yeah. bit. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was very, you know, and that just made, like, I feel like Ollie is one of those elements that you brought to the story that not just having this genderqueer character, you know, non-binary character that helps it feel modern, but also it's Ollie brings a lot of psychological depth to the story that helps it feel modern because we don't have that like anachronistic square jawed detective character. You know, the closest we get is Jenkins who's just a cop doing his job, you know, Yeah. but like the amount of time we spend with that, element of ollie's arc i thought really it just added a lot to the story so um all right well i don't want to keep you too much longer i guess i'd love to have you back on at some point if you have something else coming out down the road tell us again when does so merciless waters so uh stradivarius is available now right yep stradivarius is available merciless waters is available for pre-order both Mm -hmm. ebook and paperback and it comes out in November. And then I got some other stuff too coming up. I have a co-written novel uh, that I put together with April Yates called Lies That Bind. Mm. It's a very smutty erotic horror Ooh. novel that takes place. That uh, sounds fun. Thank you. <laughs> takes place in the early 1900s um, with some some women who run a sham seance business. Ooh. Uh, in, the, in the early 1900s. So that'll be fun. And uh, I'm editing an anthology called Scissor Sisters, uh, which is coming out, I believe, January of 2024. And some more announcements are coming. And I have a collection coming out with Off Limits Press. Sorry, that's a lot of things. Uh, the collection comes out late next year. Okay. Next fall. Well, I'd love to have you back on to talk about some of that. So yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ray, for coming on and having such a great conversation. For all you listeners out there, like we said, the Stradivarius is available now. And uh, you might as well go ahead and order your copy of Merciless Waters, too. I'll put links to both in the show notes. And, of course, like I said up top, please go ahead and go to your streaming service that you're listening to this on and click the subscribe button. Give us a good five-star review. It really does help to spread the word and help the podcast grow. So thanks again for listening, and I will be back with you guys in a couple weeks. Bye.